0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you had a good weekend. It's going to be a fantastic week. Starting with today, today's Monday, and I like Mondays. Gets us back into the swing of routine, as routine as we can be nowadays, with how strange the world can 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 continue to be. Spit that out, Bill. My first uh, day talking since the weekend. So here we go. All right, I'm looking at uh, Romans chapter eight, and it. And the love of God, which starts in Romans 8 with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a powerful message to be reminded of today as we get the show started. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I love the way that Romans 8 ends, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So there's no condemnation, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. What confidence we have in that. John Stott, the great theologian, who I met once, said to me, or didn't say to me. He said in a book that it describes the, the truth of this passage. He said, it's like a pillow on which you can rest your weary head. There's no condemnation and nothing can separate you from the love of God. So we're going to get started uh, today talking to my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa, Patrick Albanese. He's my first guest, followed uh, by the Monday afternoon mix with Miles Arnold and Maxwell. That's going to be happening and uh, the first hour and then the second hour, full hour with Dr. Marcus Bachman. So it's going to be a great show. So uh, get your questions ready. You can send them off in advance to 877-933-2484. And Patrick,
1: welcome to the show. Hey, I, I, I love what you were talking about, but I, I, I think I have to take a small exception. Small exception. All right, what is it? Well, okay, so you know, you you say that 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 nothing can really separate you from God, but I have seen on Facebook lately that if you're the kind of person that does not return a shopping card, you are evidently the dregs of humanity. Oh boy, I don't know. You know, you know how these memes somehow oh, they're so get going and, Yeah, and then so I, I think I've seen it on my my timeline uh, you know a dozen times where it says well let me tell you what it tells the world about you if you don't return a shopping cart I was like I had no idea this subject was so deep I know <laughs> I always thought that little spot that they have put your shopping cart here was sufficient but evidently you're supposed to bring it back wax it give it a tune-up <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, I always one I always get the one with the wacky wheel I either they all have wacky wheels or I get the one with the wacky wheel yeah you know the wacky wheels? I think they
0: all do I'm convinced they yeah. all
1: do. I think they all do. I think that's just that keeps you from taking them. You're no. going, I can't take. I'm not taking this home. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. no good. Uh, so I actually I, feel pretty good though because my car finally started. As you know, I've been having some troubles, and I, I, like a half hour ago, I finally got it to start, and I felt like Doc Brown in Back <laughs> to the Future when the lightning bolt struck and it hit the car, and Marty went back to 1985. I was in my driveway going woo. Oh gosh!
0: That had to have felt good. I know you uh, don't want that car to die before you return it. <laughs>
1: oh, I... <laughs> yeah, my lease is. Due Your to be lease is up in a,
0: what three weeks? Like,
1: hang on, baby. Hang on there. Hang on. <laughs> Do not. No costly repairs for three more weeks, please. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we're talking a lot about uh, is school going to resume? I know that's a big issue right now. Uh, you sent me something very interesting from the CDC. Do talk about that.
1: Yeah. So now, uh, of course, the CDC, you know, people either love them or hate them, depending on the day of the week and which political party you might be with or what narrative you're interested in. But, you know, they do at least keep statistics and and hopefully you keep the statistics. They're just numbers. And so I I found the link to the. You can go there, folks, if you want to. But uh, you, you could spend hours there saying, wow, how many people do get struck by lightning a year? And so they do have those stats. And if uh, you look at their latest stats, they'll update them. I think they update them every Wednesday. Uh, they, You can go to the area where there's death from COVID-19. And uh, if you take the entire United States from February 1st till last week, and you add up the age ranges under age one, one to four, and five to 14, so all children from uh newborn to the age of 14 nationwide. Do you know how many children have died from COVID? And you can get that number. Do you know what the number is? I mean, I know, you know, it cause I sent it to you.
0: I, I know it, but you go ahead and announce it.
1: 31. And then you can pull up another column. And of course we don't want anyone to lose anybody, but then you say, not. well, Okay, you know what are other causes of death for kids in this age range, and if you add up the pneumonia and influ kids just got the flu and did not survive. You add, you take those two categories. It's three hundred. It's ten times as many from those categories. Yeah. Well, to, to be more specific, specific.
0: one hundred and ninety-one died from pneumonia, and one hundred and one died from the flu, ages one to fourteen. Yeah. yeah. So let's add uh, flu and pneumonia together and you get, you get 292,
2: 292.
0: Versus, versus 31 from covid. That's what 10 to 1.
1: 10 to 1 and if you look at those age ranges uh this was actually kind of startling to me to think wow that's a big number. Over 11,000 children died in that uh in that time frame, that same time frame in America. You you just you don't think about it. Right. Uh, cause it seems to, you know, you, you see the occasional story, but, uh, evidently, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm, you know, my grandmother was one of 13 children. She was born in 1903 and, uh, seven children made it out of childhood. So, and you know, it's not the, you know, how our grandmothers were and even our mother's generation, they it's, we don't talk about that stuff. It's like, no, no, that's, a, that's a startling statistic. It grandma, is. I want it. Nah, yeah, you know, I didn't know them. I was the youngest in the family, so a lot of them were gone before I was even born. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, so th- it's it's. I mean, these are real stats from the CDC, and you know, I, I know that you can get on all kinds of sides of this debate about kids going back to school or not. But um, th- it's a, it's a much smaller. I guess the, what I'm trying to say is the way that the news is presented. You would have thought that that number would not be 31, but there would be some sort of astronomical number that uh, is wiping out our next generation of children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently it is, at least as of yet, has not even uh, registered a blip. So, and then you think of the
0: number of kids that need uh, daily meals that they get at school. And there's also a number of children that get recognized by teachers as being uh, victims of abuse. Uh, the kids really yep. need to go back to school.
1: So well, the and there, and, my um, uh, mother, go ahead. Pepper. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. My mother-in-law uh, taught, she taught special needs kids and reading recovery, uh, at one of the local, and it was in a, not, not such a great uh, school district and not a great neighborhood. Uh, I, I would come by sometimes to do magic shows for the kids. It would be after school hours because you weren't allowed to interrupt the school hours the way they had it set. And some of the kids weren't allowed to attend because if you weren't going to provide dinner, we can't have the kids there. You know, we got to go get dinner somewhere and we got a free dinner somewhere else. So these kids are getting fed breakfast, lunch. And if you're doing an event, oh, I'm sorry. I turned that off. What are, how many times do I have to tell you? And then we lost him.
0: <laughs> All right. I think uh, probably OK to take a little break. Patrick Albanese is my guest. We'll uh, be back in 90 seconds.
2: What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could.
0: I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. <whistles> And my head i 'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain welcome back to the show. Patrick Albanese is my guest. We like to get things started a little bit on the light side and Patrick is <laughs> quite good at handling that uh, that job description, so thank you for that. as a matter of fact, I heard you had a fairly productive weekend. I heard you wrote a joke over the weekend on plagiarism.
1: Well, yes, and technically i didn't i didn 't write it, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm taking the credit for it. Yeah, good. <laughs> and then did so, you, you took the kids swimming today. What was that like? We took the, okay. So now you might say to yourself, oh my goodness, COVID craziness. You, you're taking kids swimming. So, uh, there was a little pool in, in a small town. Uh, so my wife says to me a couple of days ago, I, I made an appointment to take the kids swimming. We, you know, they have, a, I mean, we have a little swimming pool in the backyard and, uh, we have to put air in it as much as we have to put water. In it. it's, <laughs> it's, it's in really bad shape, but they're all sold out everywhere. And every backyard seems to have one and you can charge admission. Really? You know, it's kind of nice. It's been a big moneymaker for us, but she said, Oh, they are uh, this town, this Dallas center. Uh, you can make an appointment and they let 25 people in at a time and you get two hours to swim. Hmm. So, uh, I was like, Oh, Okay. Um this sounds interesting and they take a half hour period between appointments and they wipe the place down I'm I'm thinking they just throw the bleach stuff right back in the pool you know <laughs> take, take the wipes throw them in the pool it's all bleach right right so uh we had to drive a half hour and uh there were seven of us uh, my wife and I and our two kids and then her brother and his two kids and we get there and I mean, it's a dump. It's, 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 it's bad, but we're going in because it's a pool. uh, Yeah. They didn't have the kiddie pool open. And so we get to the door and they see, we had our reservation and, uh, uh, suddenly, you know, nobody has any money and they look at me. I'm like, Oh, great. Uh, all right. And she says $14. I'm thinking each.
0: Was it each or for everybody?
1: It was for everybody. Okay. Two bucks.
0: Oh, that's not bad.
1: Not bad, was, so but of course I go. Do I get a senior discount? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did not give me my senior discount uh, on account of I. Uh, I mean, I looked younger than the senior discount. So, uh, but we got the pool to ourselves, and of course we first we walk in, and the first thing is I see people I know, uh, and we're a half hour away, and they say, "You know about our little secret," and uh, it was a glorious time. The kids had a ball, there were a total of 12 kids there, and then 13 adults, so the more adults than kids, and then four lifeguards. I'm going, that's a lifeguard, like for every two kids? No, that's this is- a, this is that's a b- good deal. Every two- and it was fantastic, and I said, oh my gosh, this is so much fun, this is water. Uh, the Kids almost had forgotten how to swim, it was, uh, <laughs> so they, they found a way, but then you do the math, and you think, so you're getting $50 in revenue? for every two hours that you're open, hmm. that's not so good. That's not
0: good. But it's summertime and work.
1: kids should be in a pool. Yes.
0: That's my, oh, that's my, my motto.
1: My it, kids had a good time.
0: Yeah. And speaking of other summer activities, I know I'm glad baseball starting on Friday night. And I find it very interesting uh, what the Washington Nationals are doing regarding opening day. You want to share with our listeners about that?
1: Yeah. So uh, Dr. Fauci, who, you you know, I've had I like the guy, but there are times I say, you know, you could have spoke up about this. And and I had a little beef about him a couple of months ago saying you don't need masks. And then he says you do need masks. But the reason we told you you didn't need masks is we didn't want people to buy all the masks. We wanted to save them for the professionals uh, in the medical industry uh, who needed them. So are you saying that you're okay if I got sick (laughs) as long as somebody else had a mask? So that was my little my personal little beef with him. But, you know, he's always he's against. He doesn't like people gathering. He doesn't like social gatherings. And when people say we want to open up and sporting events, it's like, no, gosh, uh, I'm not very comfortable with this, except he's very comfortable throwing out the first pitch at the Nationals game. See, so when you are a big baseball fan, COVID runs away. I don't know if it's that COVID runs away, but. You know, evidently, you know, we all have our breaking point. Even Doctor Fauci mm-hmm. he says, "I am going to this game. I'm throwing out the first pitch." I got to throw out the first pitch at a uh, at a minor league game, and uh, I did it with a, a mutual friend of ours. We both got to throw one.
0: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, you, it, you hit someone in the stands.
1: I no, I did not. I did not. I threw a strike.
0: Oh, so you recall that? I'd like to see the video. I don't know if I'm buying I, that.
1: I do have some photos, uh, but I don't know.
0: I need live video.
1: No. So here's the, I went to the health club that had a tennis court and for three days I would grab a bucket of tennis balls and I made a strike zone on one of the walls where nobody was playing tennis and I practiced. Okay.
0: So, so you're being more convincing right now.
1: Yeah. So, as you know, when I when I hit the pitcher's mound, first thing I said is, I'm a little rusty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just to buy yourself a little bit of space in the event you don't throw a strike.
1: It was, you know, the catcher he comes and he goes, that's a really good pitch. I think that came in at about 32 miles an hour. Nice, so, nice. You know, pretty easy to hit, but it was, it was right in the sweet spot. That baby was, that's a homer yeah. for just about anybody.
0: So I'm glad we started talking about the CDC right before your internet connection went out because the CDC is apparently the place you're supposed to go to to find government information. You're supposed to rely on them because they say they're science. And yeah. the CDC said that there's been 31 children that have been lost to COVID uh, relative to about 300 that have been lost to the flu. Um, and pneumonia. And pneumonia. So Dr. Red. Redfield, who's the director of the CDC, he was the one that I think the left um, jumped on saying, Boy, Dr. Redfield's saying wear masks or so everyone must. Now he comes out and says, We need to reopen America's schools, and the left kind of went silent.
1: Yeah. In fact, he was doing an interview. He said, You know, we, we never recommended closing the schools at the CDC, we never rec- recommended a complete shutdown. No, they were big on mitigation strategies. Obviously, that's his his approach with the masks. is It's it's just a mitigation strategy. It's it's uh, you know, and and at least their truth there's truth in the advertising when they say, the idea is to slow the spread. You know, the, back in February it was to flatten the curve. We locked down to flatten the curve so that we didn't overwhelm systems. And now, the goal is to uh, slow the spread. But, you know, when you listen to those words, you go slow the spread. You're not eliminating the spread. You're just saying we're going to spread it out. We're going to slow it so it doesn't, again, we're back to overwhelming the system. So I, I find him, he's been pretty consistent. And when he said, we never really, we've never recommended shutting down the schools. You know, we think, I think they should open. I think it's more important that they be open. It got kind of quiet out there, didn't it?
0: Yeah, it got really quiet and you uh, yep. also brought to attention an, um, a story out of or orlando florida of a motorcycle accident
1: this was actually pretty hysterical so they I mean, it's
0: not hysterical uh, cuz the guy died of course but
1: no 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 no, no. I, mean, I think the 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 wording the the way this guy twisted the words okay. the health expert in florida was somewhat uh, interesting because they reported this. Well, we had two people under the age of, of 20 uh, pass away from COVID. And so the intrepid reporter, which is rare these days, said, oh, okay. So they um, did they have any comorbidities, any underlying conditions that we should know about? And the expert, I guess he wasn't expecting the question. He says, well, uh, I know one of them did not because he died in a motorcycle accident. So... <laughs> The reporter continues the questioning and says, um, oh, look, excuse me a second, but uh, he died in a motorcycle accident. Yes, but he had COVID at the time. He said, well, but that sounds like his actual cause of death was this motorcycle accident. And then the, the health expert said, well, we can't be certain that COVID didn't cause the crash. Wow. So I thought that was rather unique. Yeah. It's much more fun just to take your kids to the pool, even if it is a dump.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Well, oh when goodness. you
0: start making those motorcycle accidents, COVID deaths, you know there's something seriously wrong. I mean when you look at the number of ways in which people, experts, have miscalculated or not known what they were talking about, I mean have has the United States even used thirty thousand ventilators? I mean, at one point, okay. Governor Cuomo said, "I need thirty thousand ventilators for my state." Have I we even used thirty thousand in the
1: country yet? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know, but you know, Dr. Burks, the other uh, expert, you know, she had said, "Best case scenario." This was months ago. She said, "Best case scenario: if we do, if we do everything right, we will probably still lose two hundred thousand people. If we don't do things right, it'll be." One to two million people hmm. will die from this. And that was part of the initial impetus to, you know, do the lockdown because said we got to start doing some, some of these things right. But even if we do every last thing right, probably 200,000. And I think a lot of people blocked that because you don't want to believe that. You don't want to think that that could happen because we say that's a big number and that's going to affect all of us. And we're all going to know somebody. Mm-hmm. We're all going to know somebody.
0: I go back to the Uh, Hong Kong flu. I was from 1968 to 1970, and I think there were a million people worldwide that lost their lives. But we didn't shut anything down. Everything continued. In fact, we
1: we opened up Woodstock. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's Yeah. I said, here's what we think about your Hong Kong flu. We're going to go here. Right. We're going to do everything wrong, and nothing happened. And I'm not saying that's the path, but... uh, uh, it is interesting that uh, sometimes, even if you do do everything correctly, you can't avoid certain fates. It's it's sad. Mm-hmm.
0: sad. And, pa- and Patrick, don't you put everything in the election year uh, context? Isn't everything up for uh, further scrutiny when you think of what's at stake? Doesn't everything yeah, I, become a tool or a weapon or isn't there something you have to ask more questions about?
1: for me it it certainly does if if I am talking to people and then it turns into a political thing i said well i I just don't think that this should be a political matter right uh, if we're talking about people's health and if if you start to make it a political matter, then you might start to cheer for bad news and uh you know so if if your side would benefit from bad news, you know. I think you can put yourself in a position where you're saying, well, that won't bother me so much, I guess, if that bad stuff happened, because then we win. Uh, so I try to avoid doing that because I, I find, you know, you, your mind can start to go to some bad places and you say, that's not good. You know, we, we have to have love in our hearts for, for everybody, even the ones that are, you know, uh, let's say in a, in a social media setting saying, you know, if you don't agree with me, you are you can't be my friend and you're one of the the worst people that ever walked the planet earth, I think that those are the people you have to still be saying, I still love you. I still have love for you. I still, uh, I, I still want to be your friend and I'm sorry that we disagree in these things. I, I don't want to get into fights with people over stuff like this. I feel like we're being manipulated by someone for a vote.
0: You, you know? know, we always have to put the cross before any politics ever. I mean, we always have to put the su- supremacy of Christ in our lives, in our conversations with everyone, and not get into this political rant that produces zero uh, good outcomes.
1: Wait, do you remember when you used to go to movies when you were younger? And of course, you know, you hadn't figured out that the, the good guy wins, right? Right. And so uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the cliffhangers would get you. You would say, oh, this is, this is, they're never going to get out of this. Right. This is it's a disaster. You know, I mean, that Darth Vader is his father. Well, I didn't even know <laughs> what to do with that. Uh, and then, you know, as you get older, you know, those kind of things it didn't work as well uh, because you say, I kind of know how the story is going to end. I think we have to look at this and say, I know how this story ends. God wins. Right. God yep. wins in the end.
0: He is sovereign and in control. And uh, we need to just share our love with others and not get in how arguments. How not
1: take... Yeah, Yeah. and how do you take joy in that? It's like, wait a minute, the good guy wins.
0: Yeah, St. Augustine wrote, Patrick, that God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. That was it. There was only one person in the world, and that was you, and he loves you. Wow. Yeah, pretty big. I'm going to have to take a break and uh, talk to you next week. Patrick Albanese has been my guest, my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa. We'll take a short break and be right back. to the show. I'm very excited to uh, meet Anthony DiStefano. He is an author who, it's like he writes travel guides regarding eternal real estate, and I think it's going to be a fascinating uh, conversation. He's written a book called Hell, A Guide. Hmm. He's also written a, a book similar to uh, the other side, calling A Travel Guide to Heaven. So he, he he likes eternal destination real estate topics, and that's what we're going to talk about with him today. Anthony, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. It's a great uh, honor. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Now, I understand you might have mixed reviews when it comes to doing uh, interviews because some people kind of beat you up because this is kind of a serious subject.
2: I haven't been beat up yet. You know, I'm, I'm a <laughs> I'm a Brooklyn Italian street brawler, yeah. okay, so I, good. Haven't, I haven't lost any fights yet. But uh, <laughs> I don't mind a little bit of uh, interaction uh, about a, a subject as important as this one.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear just uh, briefly, before we jump into the book, just a little bit about your upbringing, because the whole thing sounds real interesting to me.
2: You know, I didn't grow up uh, as a committed Christian at all. I grew up in a very kind of secular type of home, as I said, in New York. It wasn't until my 20s, my late 20s, actually, that I started becoming serious about my faith, and it was really through the uh, writings of C.S. Lewis. Oh, You know, I read uh, The Screwtape Letters was the first book that I read by him, and then uh, uh, Mere Christianity, and I went through everything. And I said, oh my goodness, here's a guy who's uh, so rational and makes so much sense. So that's really when I became interested. And I said, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I thought it wouldn't be wonderful to do this in my life, to write these kinds of spiritual books, books that would help people uh, with the things that were most important in life. That was my thinking, and 20 books later, I I hope I've uh, contributed something.
0: Oh, indeed you have. So who first put a C.S. Lewis book in your hand, or did you find it on your own?
2: I was in London, and I went to uh, Westminster Cathedral, and I went to the bookstore there, And my eye caught the title, The the Screwtape Letters, by C.S. Lewis, and I just happened to look at it for no reason. And it was a small book, and that's why I had to go take a train ride up to Manchester. So I thought, oh, here's a small book I can read. And I read it from cover to cover, and then I did something that I haven't done since. I started it back right up again on the first page. Wow! Made a big impression.
0: Well, your book, Hell, is going to let readers go on a complete exploration of um, hell and the devil and demons and and evil itself. And C.S. Lewis uh, imagined it as a gray, joyless city. And I think uh, one of the questions you uh, take up in the book is, is hell a place or a state of being?
2: Yes, I do. And of course, the answer to that question, I think, uh, is both uh it's certainly a state a state of uh separation and self-exclusion from god and from the blessed in heaven but as christians you know we believe in this marvelous uh doctrine of the resurrection the idea that one day we're going to have our bodies. You know, we weren't created to be angels. We're not meant to be pure spirits. Spirits We're an amazing kind of hybrid body and soul, and God created us that way, and that's the way he means us to be for all eternity. And at some point, we are going to be reunited with our bodies and be human beings again. And if you're going to go to heaven, well, then you'll have a glorified body, but if you're going to go to hell, then you will have a reprobate body. Mm. And so at that point, that in Indicates that hell will be some kind of a place. Now, we don't know whether it will be a place just like this, or but just the fact that we're going to have bodies, some kind of body, just means that there must be some kind of physicality, some sort of physical material atmosphere in some way for that body to operate. So that's why hell can be described as a state and at some point a kind of a place, but we don't know exactly exactly what. No one knows.
0: Yeah, Anthony, it also seems that descriptions of hell would suggest that there is a physical body with needs that are wanting to be met.
2: Yeah, the real bodies, the only real experience we have in Scripture of a a description of a body after it's risen from the dead is is our Lord Jesus, and he had a glorified body. St. Paul says he is the first fruits of those who will rise— And he was, you know, able to go through walls and be in one place and then um, 50 miles away the next second. But at the same time, he was able to eat. You know, he was able to be touched. So it's a a strange and mysterious kind of frightening reality what these bodies will be like after the resurrection for those in heaven and for those in hell. But in terms of the, the need to do things, I think that goes to a much deeper question, and that has to do with truth and freedom. The Bible says, you know, the truth will set you free and, and that's because there's a profound connection between truth and freedom. Well who is free who is truth? Jesus is truth. God is truth. So God is not going to be in hell. So therefore there's not going to be freedom in hell either. There's only going to be captivity there. Mm-hmm. Captivity to what? Captivity to desires that go without gratification, a captivity to those with stronger wills. It's a fascinating subject, but it has to do with captivity.
0: Anthony, there's a passage in Scripture for those who are saved that says, absent from the body is present with the Lord. So if you are unregenerated, unsaved, is there a corollary?
2: Some people uh, believe in uh, something called annihilationism. You know, there are people nowadays who reject the notion of hell, and they say that uh, either God is going to save everyone, and they believe in universal salvation, or somehow if you're really evil and reject the lord that he's going to sort of turn you into a puff of smoke the problem with those theories is that they they contradict the direct words of Christ. Christ spoke about hell 11 times in uh, Scripture, and he used the most clear, unambiguous, uh, frightening words imaginable. You know, he never said, and the unrighteous will enter the house of God and be happy forever, or, or the impenitent will be destroyed and no longer exist. No, no. He explicitly said that there was a a place called hell, Gehenna, that people go there. Uh, that it's forever and he used words like everlasting punishment and everlasting fire and the fire that will not be quenched i mean it was you know he he spoke about hell a lot so much so that we've got to take it seriously mm-hmm. i think that people who say who believe in annihilationism or universal salvation i think they have a misguided view of god's mercy uh, they think they're injecting more mercy into the gospel and this is really the key to my book It's not merciful for God to force someone to be in His presence. The folks who are in hell don't want to be with God. They hate God. Mm -hmm. They've rejected God, and so they want to be as far away as possible from Him, just like Satan rejected God. And that's why hell exists, uh, because there are those uh, fallen angels as well as human beings who had the power and the choice to reject God, and they did.
0: Mm. Part B of my question was, Absence from the body means present with the, the Lord. But does absent from a body who's been unregenerated, who a person who rejected Christ, do they go to hell and are now in the presence of Satan?
2: I think it depends how you define those terms. And the the answer is yes. But only our Lord is able to judge right. whether that's absolutely taken place or not. You know, people are deceivers. People lie. People say they believe in Christ. Jesus himself said, you know, on the last day, there are going to be those who say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Very frightening words. We're not allowed to judge the inner state of a person's soul. So we can't say that. But objectively speaking, yes.
0: So, Anthony, what, uh, what do you think hell would look like?
2: You know, that's another fascinating question. And of course, when you say what will it look like, you ha- we're, we're referring to after the resurrection again, because if something is just spiritual, it doesn't look like anything. Mm-hmm. Scripture uses two words to describe hell, really darkness and hellfire. So those are the two indications in the Bible, darkness and hellfire. And you have to really unpack those words and see why would those words be used to describe hell? Darkness, well, think about it God is light, God is truth. So if you turn away from that, where are you going to be? You're going to be plunged in darkness. You're going to be plunged in lies. In terms of strictly the physical uh, surroundings of hell, God is beauty, and colors are beautiful. So if God is absent in hell, then there is no beauty in hell. So there's certainly not going to be any colors in hell. It's going to be something gloomy, whether it's dark or black, no one can say for sure. But a world without color is certainly not a beautiful world fire is another word people today like very progressive theologians uh, or not even progressive theologians uh, just don't want to uh, admit the possibility that there's some kind of fire they say that well fire is just you know the most painful thing we could think of on earth and so we use fire uh, to describe hell but again the, you know the bible talks about hellfire in so so many different times in such a serious way that you got to believe that after the resurrection some kind of physical quality of fire uh, will exist there, you know and it, and it sort of makes sense because if God is the source of all pleasure, God is the source of all pleasure. If you turn away and reject that there 's not going to be any pleasure there 's going to be the, the opposite of that, and that 's pain and someone who 's rejected God totally will be engulfed in uh, pain the way people are sometimes engulfed in flames, so very scary, but you know one thing bill. That I've always tried to do in my books. The fathers of the church, the generation right after the apostles, they had a, a phrase, a Latin phrase called "fides quaerens intellectum," faith seeking understanding. You know, we've been given the faith. The faith's been revealed to us in the words, in the Word, in Scripture we have to do our best to try to understand that faith now, because sometimes it can, it can be confusing. And so uh, the, my book on hell and all my books are really an attempt to understand these hard sayings of, of Jesus, rather than try to invent a new faith, which is what some people, I think, unfortunately, try to do. Mm,
0: great point, Anthony. In Luke 16, the rich man says that he wants someone to have pity on him and, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. So there's supreme thirst uh, in the terms of this yes. rich man. That would be a yeah, horrible yeah. condition.
2: I think, think you know, for people to really understand, again, it's most helpful to think, of what, what is God? You know, God is, is life. God is uh, – so if you turn away from him, what do you have? You have the second death. Right. God is light. If you turn away from that, what do you have? You have darkness. God is truth. If you turn away, what do you have? You have, you have lies. It, God is, is peace and order. So if you turn away from that, what do you have? You have chaos. You have strife you know so if you want an idea of hell you've got to you know imagine what it's like to to turn away from all that god is you know on earth god, earth is so mixed in with good and evil you know people can commit all kinds of sins and still derive you know pleasures from them because this world is so full of the reflection of god all around us but in hell god is not going to be there he's gonna, not going to be there at all and so what you're going to be left with is, as CS.. Lewis said, you're going to be left with the remains of, of a human being after all the good has been drained out. And so we're going to be left with the remains of, of a world, after all the good has been been removed, and that's that's, that's scary.
0: -hmm. We're going to take a little break. My guest is Anthony de Stefano, although his friends call him Anthony. Uh, he's written a book called "Hell: A Guide," and we'll, we'll take a short break and be right back.) <laughs> Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Anthony Stefano as my guest. He's written a book called Hell, a Guide, and I find this fascinating, and I know you will too. Um, we all have lots of strange, scary thoughts about hell, as you should. Uh, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, um, that would be your destination. And a lot of people don't want to think about it or talk about it. And, you know, when you have an unsaved friend or family member, you know, it's even worse when you know in your heart they rejected Christ Yet, it seems that at the funerals, you still talk about them being in a really good place.
2: Yes, yeah, right. People are canonized uh, the second they die. Uh, yeah. You know, it's very, very strange.
0: Yeah. What about yeah. the second they die when they have uh, not been made right with God?
2: When a person dies, you know, we define that as the separation of the soul from the body. The soul, as the, old, the theologians Say is the animating principle of the body. It's the it's the seat of our intellect and our will. It's the source of all our faculties. When the soul separates from the body, uh, that soul is still conscious in a way. In, uh, it, it does. It, people think, oh, you're unconscious and you lose your vision. No, 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 not 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 at all. The soul doesn't lose sight for one second. And and think about this. You know, angels can see and they don't have eyes. God the Father can see, and he doesn't have eyes, and we can see when we're sleeping and our eyes are closed. So sight isn't something that is absolutely dependent on you know, your retina and your cornea and your mm-hmm. eyes. So souls that, that, that are separated from bodies still see, and you know what they see right away? They have an encounter with, with the Lord, and the Lord is light light and truth. And in that moment of this encounter with light and truth, they are illuminated and they see the truth about themselves, the truth of their sins, the truth of their rejection. I'm talking now about someone who goes to hell, the rejection of, of the Lord and, um, and, and, you know, so that if, if that is the case, you know, that the light that they see is not going to be something inviting and warm and loving. It's going to be something that's harsh and painful, and they're going to, you know, like when a, when a light is painful, you put your eye in front of it, or you, turn, you put your hands in front of your, your eyes, and you turn around. And these souls uh, are going to want to dive into hell. They're going to want to go running away from God because the vision of him is not going to be beautiful. It's going to be hurtful and harmful.
0: It's interesting, uh, Anthony, I have a friend who's worked in in hospice care for 25 years and he's, you know, he's watched 5,000 people pass on and there's that uh, stories he can tell where, you know, a person who has lived their life for the Lord and has had a deep abiding faith, it's the most peaceful thing. And he said, then I've had many conversations with people who have rejected uh, God and said, I don't want anything to do with him. Um, As a matter of fact, I'm an atheist and he says, Witnessing some of those departures from this earth has been horrifying.
2: Yes. Yeah, it must be. Well, you know, perfect love casts out fear. And so when we love the Lord, fear does go go down. Fear doesn't mean you're not going to be frightened a little bit. But I think it is very true that those who have a strong faith, just they die better. Because they they know they're going to meet the Lord. They're going to meet God. And that's what they've done all their life. Death is meeting God. And so if you've spent your life every day praying, you're meeting God. Every right. day you're meeting God. So it's not, it's not something new to meet God after you die. But those who have never met God and those who have rejected God, well, now there's going to be a, a meeting. They, they can't change their minds about it either. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's going to be more frightening.
0: Yeah. So what kind of activities would you think—and we have biblical descriptions of what goes on in heaven or what we think is going to be part of the heavenly experience— what kind of activities can you see happening in hell?
2: Again, this is all speculation. No one can say for sure. Right. We, we, we seem to know that punishments in some way are proportional. The Book of Psalms says, God renders to every man according to his work, and, and, and that's repeated in Scripture. And, and, and Jesus, too, says, indicates that when he says that, you know, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for some of the towns he visited on the Day of Judgment. So this indicates that there's going to be a proportionality to the pain experienced in hell and the the punishments there. I think we have to take more seriously the words of Christ. You know, he said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. That doesn't just apply to those of us who are saying our prayers and and loving God. That applies to sinners, too. You spend your whole life seeking to reject God, seeking to to fulfill all kinds of uh, sinful desires that are contrary to the will of God then that's not going to stop when you die. You're going to take those sinful cravings and desires with you. The only difference is that that you're not going to experience any of the corresponding pleasure that accompanied those sins possibly on earth because of what we said before, that God is the source of all pleasure, and he's not going to be in hell. So what we see then is a picture of these reprobates who are are captive and slave to their own sinful desires without any ability to get any gratification. Now, how that plays out exactly, no one can say for sure. Mm. But we know there's some kind of slave dynamic in hell, not just to, uh, say, demons or other reprobates with stronger wills. That's about as close as we can come. There have been books like uh, uh, Dante's Inferno or Milton's Paradise Lost or 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 C. S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. They're great masterpieces of poetry and allegory, and so they can and fic, they're works of fiction, and so they can you know describe all kinds of things that happen. But this book is a book about reality, and it's about what actually happens in hell. So all we can do is is guess, uh, but it's not going to be fun. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Anthony, in chapter 14, you said something that just jumped off the page for me. You said, the devil will attempt to cultivate in your soul a fear for your family, a fear for your finances, a fear for your health, a fear for everything that's important to you. And he'll try to convince you, you don't have the ability to deal with your problems. And then you say that after he has enslaved you for a period of time, he does his best to convince you that you are powerless to conquer your sins, as well as uh, any of the other challenges in your life. He's all for full-on defeat, isn't he?
2: Yes, and we have to remember that the devil is very intelligent, and he can read the Bible as well as we can, and he knows very well that God's name is mercy, and he knows that God will forgive any sin, no matter how many times we sin, no matter how grievous, as long as we turn uh, in repentance and faith to him, God will forgive even at the last minute. So Satan's whole strategy, really, if you think about it, has to turn on getting us never to repent, getting us never to turn to God, to faith. And there's really only three ways he can do that. Uh, one is through atheism, you know, because if you're an atheist and you don't believe in Christ, then, well, what's the point of ever apologizing if nobody's up there listening to you? You know, what, what, you know there's nobody to apologize to. Mm-hmm. The other is what you we were just speaking about, despair. Despair is when you, you know, you, you don't believe in God's mercy, so you you think that you you're so bad that there's no way you could ever be forgiven. And so what happens is you wind up just, you know, you continue sinning and you never wind up repenting in faith because you think what's the point? What's mm-hmm. the point? And it's a vicious cycle. And the third way is to make you a, into a moral relativist, and that's someone who doesn't believe in objective truth. And someone who believes that, look, the only sins are the ones that I decide. I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong. And those folks, they never repent in faithfulness because they don't think they've done anything wrong in the first place. And that, that's, you know, set game match. The, the, right. the, Satan wins.
0: Yeah. Boy, Satan's strategies are, they're so uh, subtle where, you know, you, you'll have conversations with people that'll say, I don't know. I'll have, I'll, I will have friends in both places, so it won't matter where I go. Or, you know, I think the most fun is going to be had in hell because they always think that's where the big parties are. Yeah. Um, And I think there's going to be a sense of total desolation. You're going to think you're maybe the only one who's ever gone to hell.
2: Yeah. They they may be your friends now. They're not going to be your friends when you get to hell. Right. You know, Hitler is not playing cards with Stalin in hell. And you see this when people of great pride uh, get together, great hellish kind of arrogance and pride get together. They don't get along. There's always there, – what happens is warfare, and, 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 and that's exactly what there is going to be in hell, a state above just uh, warfare where everyone hates each other. In fact, and then looking at it in that way, hellfire might actually be a, a, an act of mercy from God if it restricts uh, – if it, if it somehow binds and restricts uh, the reprobates uh, because no, they're going to want to tear each other apart. You know, that's, that's – there's no – what's the opposite of love? Hatred. What's mm-hmm. in hell is hatred. There's not going to be any camaraderie, uh, you know, among, uh, um, among those there.
0: Mm-hmm. Anthony, when I think of some of the ways in which I know Satan will use words to try to help water down their significance, where words like hell and damned get to be such a part of people's vocabulary that, that means nothing when you go and use one of those words. You know, those words should make us shudder.
2: Yeah, that's happened with so many uh, words. C.S. Lewis talked about that, too. You know, the word love, for instance. You know, I love... God, I love uh, my shoelaces. You know, it's a, what you know. There's you know, it's, the words have been so overused that they've lost their meaning. And yes, that you're you're right. That's part of I think the the demonic strategy here is to get us to think of hell and the devil in a very cartoonish way. Mm-hmm. Because if you think of it in a cartoonish way, if you if you think that after you die, God is there, you know, with a big baseball bat, ready to hurt, you know, to <laughs> hit you mm-hmm. uh, because you didn't do what he wanted, and he's gonna you You know, press a button and a trap door is going to open and you're going to fall down into hell and then the devil is going to be there with, you know, steam coming out of his nose and horns. Well, then who's going to believe any kind of cartoonish thing like that? And right. that's what Hollywood and the media want. They, they, they want to p- continue to perpetuate that myth. But that's not what hell is. Again, hell is the state or place of permanent uh, self-exclusion and separation from God and from the blessed in heaven. And the key word there is self-exclusion. You know, you, people in hell, they want to be there. They, don't, they hate God. Mm-hmm. They've rejected God.
0: So, uh Anthony, before we uh sign off here, do you have any words of encouragement because this is a difficult subject?
2: Yeah, I you know, I want people I don't want people to think that this is a depressing book. It's not. You know, it's a- I think this is it's meant to be an inspiring book. Time and time again in this book, I emphasize the same point. God's name is mercy. One drop of Christ's blood is enough to wash away the sins of a billion universes. The goal of this book is to get people to see uh, that, 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 that the joy of our faith, the fact that God wants to, to embrace us and wants to love us and give us all the joy of heaven. Um, and so the, the point is that people will see this and then turn around and try to spread the joy of this faith to, to all around them so, so that fewer people will go to this horrible place. That's the point of this book, and I, so I hope it leaves people with a smile on their face and leaves them just on fire to go out and spread the gospel.
0: Amen. Anthony, thank you so much for doing the show today, and have a wonderful rest of the day.
2: Thank you so much, Bill.
0: You bet. Anthony DiStefano has been my guest. His book is called Hell, a Guide. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.